When it comes to butter, are you a purist like Annabelle or a pragmatist like Lee? Are you committed enough to take your butter out of the fridge an hour before making your sandwiches? Or are you too busy organising your wardrobe spreadsheet to think about the spread on your bread? Now Lurpak are bringing purists and pragmatists together with Lurpak Softest. Our softest Lurpak spreadable ever means you can effortlessly spread straight from the fridge without compromising that unique Lurpak taste. Win-win. Well, hi ho neighbour. Excuse me? <laughs> Maybe I've been listening to the Dolly Parton podcast. Oh, much. I think you might have Maybe been. Have are, you been. In, are you in Dollywood in your heart? <laughs> I have, but I'm going to save that to talk about later. Oh, God, um, listen to you. You're already organising me. But yes, 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 that's for later. Don't start on the dessert. You have to eat your veggies first. <laughs> we both had an epic clang recently. Oh, my God. So epic. And we haven't really had a debrief about it. No, we haven't. Okay, so... Listeners may remember when I had the thrilling experience of meeting Monica Lewinsky and how I turned into a big fan and whatnot, and we exchanged numbers, and then uh, I agreed to do a thing with her in November when she was coming to Sydney, which was like just a us-in conversation, Um, and uh, I said to Ms. Crab and some other friends, do you want some tickets to come to this, and then do you want to come backstage and meet Monica? And I said, I don't know, man, I'll get back to you. (laughs) No, I immediately sold my children on the open market. (laughs) (laughs) It was a really Put on some nice shoes. Good. And um and showed up because I would not have missed that for a billion billion dollars. I thought about it a lot after the event because there was a lot in it to process. Yeah. So I was just going to ask you, what did you process out of it? Oh, a whole lot. I mean, it was. It actually felt like this cultural event, just even sitting there and watching her. You know, because um, if you think about. She has had one of the most, back then, she had one of the most extraordinary transitions from non-entity to global fame, probably probably the fastest ever. I can't think of anyone who was as unknown and then became as globally known as she did. Mm, that's a good, um, yeah, that's a really interesting parlor game, isn't it, to think yeah. of somebody who became like instantly and sort of permanently famous. Yeah, because mm. even people who are hit by scandal – generally are, you know, are of interest because they're high profile anyway or, you know. Or there's some element of choice like, say, Diana Spencer where, you know, she's chosen to marry yes, Charles so exactly. there's a bit of choice yeah. involved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, of course, you know, um, she says that, still says that her, you know, affair with Clinton was consensual. So, you know, mm. I mean, there's an element of choice there. But just mm. the just the sheer talk and power of her conversion from nobody to mm. somebody that everybody in the world has heard of mm. is just um, unbelievable. So even just seeing her, she feels like such an artefact I agree. of the yeah. time. You just and you sort of are going, oh, my God, it's Monica Lewinsky. Like it really does sort of mess with your brain a bit. Yeah, yeah. and she also just looks exactly the same. I mean mm. this is um, how many years ago now? 20. 20. <clears throat> um, and she looks the same. Mm. Um, so that was quite an extraordinary thing. And also because, you know, as we've talked about before in the podcast, I think there's a lot of people for whom revisiting her and her experience is an uncomfortable feeling just Mm. because of the way we now look at what happened to her and think, wow, you know, she immediately became the sort of butt of jokes and we all kind of laughed at them, I guess, um, 
there was a a prolonged political defense of Clinton from the left that um, I think probably um, skated over the politics of what what had happened to her. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And you sort of have to look back at it um, when you hear her talk today about the impact it had on her and think about it in terms of that she was a human being at the centre of it, not just like almost a cartoon figure. Yeah. Do you know, I was thinking about this actually yesterday about Prince Andrew because one of Monica Lewinsky's um, messages is, Online, you know, do you really have to join the pylon? Um, whether it's just, say, you know, a high school kid who's getting shamed yeah. by his other high school mates or whether it's a celebrity, um, do you really have to join the pylon? And yesterday there was a story in the paper, um, so there's been this obviously epic PR cluster, you know, what's involving yeah. Prince Andrew. Yeah. Um, no, and he's a, just – all seems like good thinking. <laughs> oh, he has just been appalling. Anyway, a story came out to say Prince Andrew's considering doing a second interview to try to clean up the mess. Oh, God! <laughs> Just shut it! Dude, what? Is that for real? Yeah, I don't know. Surely wow. not. Surely he'd be bound and gagged in the basement of Buckingham Palace before he'd be allowed to this do another interview. This really seemed the, sm- the sharpest tool in the box. I mean, like, <sighs> yeah. That, that interview, I haven't I, been I, able I to watch. I read, too, that at the end of the interview he was so pleased with how it went that he gave the, the crew like a big tour of Buckingham Palace. Like, imagine getting to the end of that and thinking, Oh, that went well. Oh, God. <laughs> I haven't been able to watch the whole thing because it is so excruciating. Yeah. I've watched clips of it because it's just unbearable watching. Anyway, so this tweet by whoever it is, um, you know, Andrew, a new British newspaper, considering yeah. a second interview. And so I've retweeted it because it was like, Andrew, considering a second interview to yeah. deal with some of the unanswered yeah. aspects from the first one. Mm. And so I've retweeted it with, for example, whether at – Pizza Express Woking, one orders the Hawaiian or the Supreme. Yeah. And then I, so I tweeted it and I, you know, thought, oh, I'm so, so witty. Yeah. Um, and then I thought, well, isn't that exactly what Monica Lewinsky's talking about? Like Prince Andrew, for all of his being a massive buffoon, is an actual real person who mm. is at the centre of an absolute global yeah. pylon. I'm not saying he deserves my sympathy, but do I really need to, to be weigh into it. the pylon? Yeah. I actually, I mean, the funny thing about um, I, that I thought was really clear from that interview is I doubt that Prince Andrew would even be on Twitter, like, because um, I think I'm sure that there are, um, like many other things in his life, um, those interactions would be handled with him and I think uh, handled for him. Mm. And I think what was massively clear in that interview was that here is a person who's incredible confidence in himself to handle this situation mm. was a is a direct product of the extent to which this guy's hothoused. I mean, like he mm. – I guess this is the danger of growing up and being surrounded by staff or people who, um, you know, do your bidding and smooth your path is that you have no sense of the context in which you uh, exist. So yeah. his – his um, observation, for instance, that he's always erred towards being too honourable and that's why he had to fly over and break up with Jeffrey Epstein in person, mm. I'm sure is quite true to him because you – know, but in the context of everything that the Epstein's victims have suffered and the just incredible foolishness of Andrew's behaviour – you know, there's no context to his remarks and so yeah. he'd be utterly shocked, I imagine, at I've the often, response. I've wondered in the past about people who are wealthy. I wonder 
And I've wondered, is wealth just the removal of all friction and discomfort out of your daily life because other people are constantly smoothing your path for you? So, for example, yeah, sure. when you get to the airport, you, you firstly, you have a driver that picks you up. You're not thinking, where's the bloody cab? Or yep. you're not thinking, oh, God, the train's not here yep. or whatever. Um, well, that's you, you pretty much. You, you you're just like, <laughs> where is my driver? What the <laughs> you, hell? You get to the airport, um, you – you know, if you're marginally rich, you're in the preferred business line getting through. But if you're really rich, you've got your own private jet. You're not even having right. to go through yeah. any form of sure. lines yeah. or queues or whatever. Um, and so, you know, if you're really rich, you don't have to be on a waiting list for anything at the hospital. You just can pay for everything. So, right. and, and then, you don't even have to organize the appointment because someone else will be doing it for you. Right. So, just that sort of smoothing of everything yeah. the whole way through. So, he, he must on some level, because I mean, nobody gets that more than the royal family, he must be on some level thinking, why can't this just go away? Sure, but if everything else can be made to go away, and if you don't have, I mean, if you can, if you can buy peace of mind and security from the sort of thousand million niggles, practical niggles presented by just existing in the world, then and if you've been doing that your whole life, then you don't. There is no real human opportunity to develop empathy, and I think, mm. um, you know, when I look at Parliament sometimes and the way. You know, stuff like even the um, the question of the level of the new start rate, you know, um, comes up. And you have a look and think, well, how many people making the decisions about this have ever lived on new start? Or, you know, they, they're constantly on guard against that question, you know, could you live on 40 bucks a day or whatever? Um, I asked oh, – sorry, you finished your point. But um, I remember Jackie Lambie once making a really powerful speech um, in the Senate. It was late at night on some issue or other at the end of session and – I thought the way that she evoked the experience of living on the breadline was really powerful and I thought, God, you know, like there just are not that many people in the parliament who can directly gain access to that experience totally. firsthand. I asked the Prime Minister in an interview not that long ago um, why – like just pointed out the fact that the new start, the weekly new start is the same as the daily travel allowance rate for yeah. politicians. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, I, I, that's, yeah. Should be, shouldn't that sort of give you a really sharp jab? Well, not if your entire defensive strategy, as it is for many politicians, is trying to work out how to get out of that question without looking like a jerk. You know, like mm. the first degree of urgency is like, how do I get through this question? It's not, oh, yeah, you're right. That is kind mm, of yeah, off beam. Yeah, um, The Monica, just back to the Monica thing, mm. um, one of the things that I thought about when I was doing the preparation for it, I read a piece that she wrote in Vanity Fair. It's probably her most recent piece about yeah. it's in the context of Me Too and talking about how she – has always maintained and continues to maintain that the relationship with Bill Clinton was a consensual, mm -hmm. an actual relationship between yeah. two people who exchanged gifts yeah. and messages and time and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. And how she, that's how she sort of packaged it and put it away that she was not a victim. Yeah. She was a victim afterwards in the sort of way it was handled and mm. the, that she became a scapegoat. But in terms of the actual relationship, she was in there willingly, he was in there willingly, nobody was a victim. And so that's how she sort of processed it and how she remembers the relationship. But in the context of Me Too, she had sort of reopened the box and looked at that and was then examining the power thing and feeling mm. like even though, yes, it was a consensual relationship and a real relationship, nonetheless there was a power dynamic at play and how that was now causing her 
and was quite a difficult process for her to be then reassessing it. And it just made me think about how exhausting it is, the idea that in life you can, you know, your memories can then sort of change. Like you Mm. think that your memory is your memory, but then you can sort of reassess things. And also you can think you've dealt with something traumatic and packaged it away, but then circumstances change, you evolve as a human being, and then that forces you to reassess. So is anything in your past ever really dealt with and put away? No, that's so interesting. I can't remember if I told you um, about a novel that I read a year or two ago. I just I don't, don't know if I ever got to find it, finding the space in the podcast to talk about it. Yeah. It's um, it's a book called Putney by a writer called Sofka Zinoviev. I don't think you did. No, yeah. I don't think I did actually. But I, I, re- I mention it right now because it is a really fascinating examination of this exact question. So it's about an artist who lives in London who um, – She's kind of in her 40s, I think. She's got a teenage daughter and one of the features of her life, um, her father I think was a historian and she had a long-standing affair from the age of about 13 mm. till um, she was in her 20s with a friend of her father's and nobody knew about it um, and she loved this guy and they um, – they saw each other for a long time in secret and then they kind of grew apart and she had no hard feelings and um, and in fact came back to thinking about him because um, she was doing this work, artwork, in which she was incorporating him as a fond part of her life. But then her daughter also was approaching the same age that she was when their relationship oh, yeah. when their physical relationship started and so she's and she also reconnects with an old friend from the time whose memory of the affair and judgment of the affair is very different oh. and so the whole novel is about this woman's revisitation of what she always saw as a benign part of her life and her realization of exactly this factor the the power factors involved and when she looks at it through um in the context of her daughter she starts to become more and more disturbed about what happened to her so it's, it's an absolutely fascinating novel about exactly this question and does she then change her view of the relationship yes she does um and so it is um it's a really useful exercise this novel because it starts mm. at one extreme and then Swings back around. Yeah. And you're right. Like it does, it really does suggest one of the things that I thought quite deeply about after reading the novel was just that question that, you know, is anything ever really sort of put away and resolved? Which is a terrible, terrible thought, (laughs) terrible, scary thought. Um, I've been listening to this podcast, which I've only just started, so I didn't tell you I was going to talk about it today, but it's um, a woman called Esther Perel, who you might have heard of, who Mm. she's sort of a New York therapist. She writes books about adultery and stuff. Um, The podcast called Where Should We Begin? And it's recordings of real-life therapy sessions with people and her sort of talking them through dealing with some issues. I've only listened to two episodes, but I'm really fascinated by it because – it is amazing the insights that you can glean just by listening when it would appear that the people's problems have nothing to do with you and are not like your own circumstance. Yeah. And mm. nonetheless, listening to the way they communicate and her pointing out the flaws in their communication or her trying to steer their thinking in different directions, how you just go, that oh, God, that's, oh, it's fantastic. Oops, just gonna, it's Lisa Miller. Just going to decline her. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry Lisa, Lisa Miller. <laughs> Hi, Lisa. I just got, killed a call from Helen McCabe. Sorry, Helen McCabe. I'll call you back. Um, 
Yeah, so the, the first one I listened to was a couple where the man had had an affair and the woman was finding it impossible to move on from it. And the second one is a lesbian couple with kids and one of the partners feel one of the partners has all the parenting responsibility, one of the one of the women works and the one who's working feels like well, you don't care about me as much as you care about the children. And one with the children feels like, you know what, I am so tapped out at the end of the day when you get home, ding, I've ding, got nothing ding. to give. This even happens with lesbians. <laughs> well, that was an interesting thing that well, uh, Perel points out. Yeah. She says it's fascinating to hear two women having this conversation mm-hmm. because it shows it's not a gendered thing. It's to do with personality and right. all sorts of different yep. factors. Um, anyway, it's super interesting and it's been amazing to me listening because I would have said superficially neither of those things are things that I have a particular um, – you relevance know, to, relevance yeah. to me, my current life. But I was listening and thinking, oh, geez, that's oh, fascinating. Straight, listen to yeah, that. That sounds awesome. It reminds You've me been of keeping um, it from me. <laughs> did you ever watch that TV show In Treatment? Oh, loved it. Oh, so well, you're much. gonna love this because it's just right. reminding me of In Treatment. I just love Gabriel Byrne. Oh, just I love Gabriel Byrne. Oh, same. I, such a, that I was could such not have a loved good the show. show. So I remember starting watching that. We, um, I was pregnant and visiting my sister uh, and brother-in-law in Shanghai. And we just sat and watched it. Like yep. it was just it was so brilliant. cool. And I used to be so – I mean, every person's – so for anyone who hasn't watched it, it was it's a show about a, a therapist played by Gabrielle Byrne and it's structured so that Monday is one character, Tuesday is another character. Yeah. So every day of the week, Monday through Thursday is one person's story. Friday, Gabrielle Byrne goes to his own therapist know, played by a dentist. So and so you're just – you're dying to get to Friday to hear him download oh, know, about yeah. everything that's going on um, oh, and what he thinks of them of all. It was fantastic. Anyway, so it's, it reminds me a little bit of that. Oh, so if you like that, I think you'll be. Like I think suit. you'll be massively Can into I just, it. Um, before we finish the discussion of Monica Lewinsky, yeah. Um, and look, I mean, the whole thing was Chatham House, and also like the. I mean, you asked the audience at the beginning. Um, also, don't take pictures, please. Mm-hmm. And it made and just the request made me think. Oh God, yeah, because this woman is still photographed wherever she goes. Like yeah. she's so recognisable. Yep. Um. But so here's the question um, that I thought about a lot afterwards. Yeah. What happened to her happened in the days before social media, right? Yeah. And in some ways, I don't know, like would it have been different? Would it have sort of burned even brighter but passed more quickly in the way that so social media explosions do? Yeah, could have. But the other factor which I'd never considered is that if there had been social media at the time, our view of her would never have been so one-dimensional. And mm. I think that that's really a big part of what happened to her is that when people heard of her for the first time, these reporters, you know, everyone was all over her, right? Like I've been staking out her house for years and years and years. Mm. But what there wasn't was a backlog of her presence on social media. So you mm. wouldn't have any idea, I mean, like she's much smarter and much funnier than I would have expected, you know, because our immediate – picture of her was this sort of floozy in a beret, you yeah. know, and um, all that we knew about her was translated through her experience with Clinton, which caused people to kind of draw all these conclusions about what her character was. Mm. There was actually no supporting material that kind of fleshed her out mm. or in any way gave people a picture of the person that she really is she was yeah. so one-dimensional and can you imagine what that would be like to be in the middle of that seeing not only your life and behavior torn to shreds and intimate details about you being splashed everywhere but also the fact that people were starting with a really un 
representative idea of who you were. Yeah, yeah. Not being able to glimpse yourself in oh, the coverage. Totally. Been- and that, yeah, exactly. Like that the, the, I guess character of Monica Lewinsky, as as you know, is thought of sort of or until recently, mm. is is how she's been thought of in the public. To her and her family and her friends, bore little resemblance to actual yeah. Monica Lewinsky. Like that would be very hard if there was some Annabelle Crab character out there that was just polar opposite to what you felt you were actually yeah. like, and that ninety nine point nine percent of people believed Annabelle Crab character yeah. was Annabelle Crab. Yeah, like oh yeah. my god. Are you feeling like you don't have enough landing in your inbox? (laughs) I was trying to work out where you were going with that. I love your TV voice, though. Hi. (laughs) You wouldn't care if another thing landed in your inbox because you've already got 15,000 unanswered messages. I do. I've got a lavish amount of unopened mail in my inbox. And uh, here's the point at which I just panickedly apologise to anyone who's emailed me and I've never replied because, (laughs) seriously... You may as well just get a skywriter, to be honest. But look, if you're somebody I like, to keep like me, expectations low. But however, if you, you're somebody so like me who likes to clear your inbox and you'd inbox. like some interesting content to read, you could sign up for the Chat Ten Looks Three newsletter. It is unbelievably brilliant, and I can say that because it's not written by us. It's written by our friend Miranda Murphy, who just Funny, it's love. absolutely kills it. And I actually always read the newsletter. I do too, and also I think she is much funnier than both of us. Why is one of us not doing the podcast with her? Look, I've been um, looking for an opportunity to, to raise that, uh, Lee, now that you I mean, it's just that my conversations with Miranda are just funnier than the ones I have with you. Anyway, if you'd like to sign up for the Chat 10 Looks 3 newsletter, you go to our website, chat10looks3.com. Just sort of spool down a little bit or whatever the word is. Spool? Scroll. Scroll. Jesus. Um, also, Miranda lets me go on and on and on and on and on. This is the longest promo ever. Kathy only wanted Snappy. like 30 seconds and now we've taken up, what, 55? Oh, God. It's a podcast. I've been dying to talk to you because I read The Weekend by Charlotte Wood, which oh. I know you've also read. Okay. I've Hit me, baby. Wait, I've been waiting for this moment. Hit me. It. Like, I... So I read a book, a copy of it before it came out. So I've been kind of waiting impatiently for it to be on the shelves so that um, we can discuss it. I just, it was absolutely spectacularly great. Yep. I just, from the very first page and it just, I don't know, it spoke to me on a whole heap of levels, Mm. mainly about um, female friendship Mm. and what I love about it. So the storyline is... um, these three friends whose fourth friend has just died go to the fourth friend's house where she's lived um, to pack it up, you know, and mm. um, it is it has that kind of spiky, uncomfortable grief and element of a chore, you know, packing mm. up this woman's life but in the process kind of engaging with all awkwardness um, in their relationships with each other. They're all three obliged to sort of come together to do this thing and they're kind of resenting the one that doesn't help as much and, you know. Yeah. And the, the, the portraiture of these women's past conflicts, one on each other, two on one, three on one, mm. and this sort of strange um, – alchemy Mm. of 
a lifetime of friendship and things, terrible things that they've done to each other in the past and then forgotten or just stopped talking about, Mm. you know, things resurface over this weekend. And I'm just, it's, it's a rare book that pays attention to the lifespan of friendships between women. And that's what I really treasured about this book. It is so observant. It is. And funny. And also how how the dynamic can change when, because you've got the balance and then one person goes. And so then, you know, maybe they've got the personality that smooths over certain things or whatever. And so then it upsets the um, apple cart. I must say I I found it somewhat rattling, um, a rattling read. And I couldn't help but think about, you, me, Murph, and Gwen, just because of the foursome, yeah. um, and thinking like you just because we're younger and we're in, I guess, well, not you and Murph actually, because you guys have known each other for twenty years already. But if you take the group of four, that's a new friendship compared to like a lifetime friendship. So thinking like, wow, what are the like personality traits and the pa- patterns of behaviour now? that I'm not really conscious of within the four, but that in 30 years' time... Oh, we'll have an intervention against you so well before that. <laughs> Don't you worry. It'll be straightened out. But you just wonder, anyway, like... we won't have much work to do to come and clean out your house because uh, you will have chucked everything out already. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, won't, I wouldn't burn Mate, you guys with that. if I die that. first, you're on <laughs> trouble. I wouldn't burn you guys with that. But, yeah, like how how over time will that play out? And then, like, are we destined to, at the end not like our friends, but they're still our friends through obligation and because we're grateful for everything that came before. Or maybe you just get better at incorporating imperfection in your own life and in your friendships with others, like as you get older. Like I just think it doesn't matter as much. You know, you can incorporate, I don't know, the texture of a friendship becomes stronger once it survives a few Mm. things. Um, I Yeah. I actually had a conversation with somebody who I know a little bit um, just by accident the other day and she was saying that a very, very old friend of hers had just died and it was a friend with whom she'd had a falling out over a man like decades and decades ago. And she was talking about how they survived that and it was just this act of forgiveness and maturity on the part of the friend who was much older than the person that I was talking to. So I'm trying to be really careful about (laughs) identifying features, but it made me just think that forgiveness is such an important but misunderstood element in friendship because I don't think it necessarily is a, you know, a whiteboard eraser where you just sort of forget that it ever happened and continue as per normal. Um, But I think it is a strengthening agent because you kind of add it to the structure of your relationship. Well, I think also sometimes your friends aren't aware of all the minuscule little ways that you forgive them all the time, the stuff that they say to you that you wouldn't want to make a fuss over. Yeah, but that is annoying. Yeah, Yeah, and that you just let slide, you don't respond to whatever – but you, it niggles you for whatever reason, and yeah. then, but you mentally think, well, I'm not gonna. And I mean, this, these are the kind of things I think in friendships you're making split second decisions. Yeah. Like, I'm not gonna make a fuss about yeah. that. It's not worth making a fuss over. So that is an act of forgiveness, really. Yeah. In some ways, I'm just gonna move on yeah. from that. But then, yeah, I guess over time, or maybe that you hit a tipping point where you've done that a lot, and then you all of a sudden explode one day. Well, that's what happens in the weekend. You know, you you see this mm. sort of fast 
circling kind of and rearrangement of niggle factors yeah. over the course of this weekend as these women who are, you know, don't see each other all together all that often and are also dealing with the stress of tidying up this house but also trying to reform as a group without one really central mm. um, character and it throws everything out of whack. It throws that whole chemical balance out of whack mm. and so what happens is you see these, you know, small niggles coming to the surface and then, you know, that's quite big ones. But then also there is then also the thing where when something quite serious and awful happens, then the niggles get sort of right. cast aside yeah. because yeah. you realise like the bigger – sort of aspects of the friendship and the closeness are more important than the niggles. Right, that's correct, yeah. So, but it's, I mean, it is a really different read, for instance, than Fleischman's In Trouble, which is about, you know, yeah. trouble in a heterosexual relationship between a man and a woman. And, like, the dynamic is just so different, right? Like, and, and that's the interesting thing with, um, you know, with this sort of deep account of female friendships, there's just a whole lot of different shit going on. Just now that you've raised Fleischman. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> what? So you might remember a few episodes ago uh, I read aloud from an article written by Taffy Brodesser-Ackner and yeah. I was really quite scathing about it. Yeah. So a chatter sent us a note to say oh, – yeah. <laughs> Um, hi, I work at a bookshop in New York. Guess who came in? Taffy Brodesser-Ackner. I told her that you guys banged on about how awesome her book was in your podcast and that she should listen to it. And then after she left, I realised, oh, oh yeah, God, that's, that's right. right. That's sales, sales, sales bumped the table. <laughs> and then she thought, oh, but it's fine. She probably won't listen to it. A few days later, Taffy Brodesser-Ackner came back in and had listened oh, to it. Oh, brilliant. Hi, Taffy. <laughs> we loved your book. So I just was crushed at the thought oh. that Taffy heard me bang on about her. So if by any chance she has decided to continue listening to our <laughs> podcast or if she walks back into that same New York bookshop, um, sorry for judging you over that thing. I feel really terrible about it, even though it did rub me the wrong way. And then it was the soccer Taffy, practice. block your ears. Yeah. Taffy, if you're listening, block your ears. <laughs> you can't help yourself. So then um, I've been listening to, you know, I was addicted by succession. Yeah, yeah. So this is a measure of my addictedness <laughs> because the only other podcast uh, show I've done this for was The Americans. Slate has a recap oh, of Oh, God, succession. you're into that as well. Slate right. money, yep. Okay. So the season two, they recap every episode, so I've listened to that um, podcast. Anyway, one of the special guest commentators in one of the episodes, Taffy. Um, and <laughs> – Managed to annoy me. <laughs> anyway, I'm sure I would meet Taffy and absolutely love her, but it's like I've taken some sort of stupid set against this person that I don't even know, and I'm just want to punch myself in the but face. But you loved her book. I did love her book. Yeah. So, and yeah. also, anyway, we need sold about a billion copies of it in Australia now because of our enthusiasm. Well, not because of our enthusiasm, <laughs> but like assisted anyway, by our enthusiasm. I, yeah. I think we need to learn as well that we think I that know, oh, we there's think no way Ian McEwan's going to hear this. There's no way. Someone's going to hear this, and you just never know. They might you hear never, it. Never ever know. Oh, oh just God. Anyway, um, we love anyway, you, Taffy. Never mind. Um, radio. Oh, can I just tell you very quickly about one other little thing that I knocked over, which I'm not going to recommend, but um, it's. <laughs> now I feel like is Demi Moore going to hear this? Wow, <laughs> Demi Moore's biography, Inside <laughs> Out, ghostwritten by Ariel Levy from the New Yorker. Disappointing. All right. You were quite excited yeah, when, you, when it fell into your paws. Yeah, I was excited by it. Um, it's, it's sort of hard to put your finger on why. I mean, I think possibly my expectations were too high because I thought Demi Moore, interesting life uh, and, you know, my sort of generation. Um, yeah. 
Ariel Levy, one of the best writers at The New Yorker. Yeah. So I thought, you know, she'll know how to interview to get good anecdotes. Yeah. Also, I'm really I'm listening. I can totally have consumed her um, podcast about um, Jeffrey um, Epstein. Oh, that's Ariel Levy. Yeah, baby. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. Um, either Demi Moore doesn't have a great memory for an anecdote or maybe can't remember some of the things, but like just to give you a couple of examples. So Ghost. Um, yeah. One would think that if you were going to talk about the making of Ghost that oh, you might, oh, you just tip tea down your front, your white linen shirt. Yeah. You might have a few anecdotes about Patrick Swayze ready to go. You might have a few anecdotes about working with Whoopi Goldberg ready to go. Zippity? Nada. So what The only mention of it? Patrick Swayze was just um, that he was a nice chap. And they put Swayze in a corner, man. Um, It was mostly about learning how to do – the bits she recorded was about learning how to do pottery and – which which was interesting. interesting. (laughs) But, I mean, I just think you need to know about – Well, that's very method. She actually learned how to do pottery. How do you talk all – For real? How do you talk? When you get a hand double to do that. And she talks about getting the short yeah. haircut and like that was all interesting. Oh, no, but I was like, well, I want to know about. I'm totally going to go read it. Like, what would it be like to get a haircut? I, I can't imagine it. what that would be like. Amazing. And also, um, <laughs> do you think? Did you get the sense that Ariel Levy is just like, oh man, this is a bad idea? Yeah, I, Halfway through the book, she's yeah. like, wow. So tell me more about getting a haircut. I wondered That's if, amazing. Look, I wondered if they didn't have good rapport. <laughs> I wondered if, as I said, Demi couldn't remember stuff because she didn't have seem to have an eye for a good anecdote. Um, <laughs> Just like, what else? Like, you know, I really like my, my eggs soft-boiled. Here's why. <laughs> like, you know, like, I always forget to cut my fingernails. It's amazing. They grow so fast. It's almost fire. You don't have some anecdotes about Judd Nelson and really? about um, Rob Lowe. This and, book sounds bullshit. It, it was <laughs> Sort of surprising. And can you imagine but, Ariel Levy's like, well, my podcast about an like, international sex offender billionaire is turning out a bit more interesting than <laughs> learning how to throw a pot to me. It wasn't. It's it not Demi Moore, by the way. It's Demi. Don't forget, oh, you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. My bad. Um, it wasn't like it was bad. I mean, I read the whole thing, but yeah, I just kept I'm not feeling... getting a super positive vibe off <laughs> no. you, to tell you the truth. But even, you know... There was a bit towards the end where she talks Apparently about Taffy Britta Sackner helped with the book. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently Taffy's her best friend. <laughs> um, there's a bit towards the end of the book where she's broken up with Ashton Kutcher and she's been oh, yeah. drinking and her kids stop speaking to her. One of her kids gets in trouble at the police station. Demi, oh, her, Demi. her kids bowerbird, you know. Yeah. Key ring and um, anyway, she sort of just pot. glosses the whole family ends up not speaking to her, and she sort of glosses over it. And you're sort of left thinking, Hang on, why? What did you do that everyone is now? Is there some good Bruce Willis detail in there? I would have thought that that would be again, high like on your list. a superficial, in my view, level of what? Bruce Willis detail. <laughs> okay, this um, sounds bonkers. I'm it was a of- bit, the whole thing felt a bit superficial, and it didn't like I remember years ago reading Rob Lowe's memoir, oh, yeah. um, and it was a cracker. And I don't know, he was just sort of funny and you his anecdotes are funny. I mean, I love a showbiz memoir. I do love you? a dirty showbiz memoir. And I love Rob Lowe, but yeah. um, anyway. Okay. Um, can I finish up, please, yes. with something very positive? Yes. Um, look, uh, it's a show that I saw recently at Belvoir and it is just the most joyous thing. So, like, look out for it if it – it has already played in, in Brisbane, mm. but, oh, my God, it should tour the world. It's called Fangirls. Yeah. And it's a musical. Yeah. And it – was written and composed and starred in by this woman who's in her early 20s. Her name's Eve Blake. No, Eve Blake, yeah, Y-V-E, Eve. And it is the most joyous, spectacular, fabulous show. And it's about – it's called Fangirls. It features this girl who's a massive fan of this boy band and the – 
lead singer of the boy band. It's like loosely based on Harry Styles, basically. His name, oh, is, yeah. his name is Harry. Oh, right. And the, the character is played in this production by Aidan. He's one of those one-name people who's on Young Talent Time and then he was on um, Australia's Got Talent. Apparently he's like a super mega star. Right. I'd, of course, never heard of him, but okay. um, my 13-year-old daughter was kind of like had heard of him, I think. Right. And um, so the cast are all like fans of this guy and this boy band and they plot at school to like get to the concert and they fantasise about abducting him and making him <laughs> fall in love with him. Anyway, it is – at the end of – I went opening night and I took my daughter and the most fun was actually just watching my daughter react to this oh, show. Oh, classic. Because the songs are great. The choreography is brilliant. Like at the end, I have never seen a crowd rise to its feet so spontaneously wow. for a standing ovation. Oh, that sounds awesome. So if you see anything done by this woman, Eve Blake, and also um, – the, there was a guy in it, a young man who's just graduated from VCA um, and what's his name? James Majus. Mm-hmm. And he it was his professional debut, absolutely spectacular. Oh, great. Is yeah. it still on in Sydney or is it finished? It isn't. But, oh. look, I would be stunned if it didn't come back because okay. uh, somewhere because it's just an extraordinary so debut. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. Right, that sounds and so cool that this young woman has just – composed, written and starred in the whole thing. She's mm, amazing. That sounds so far up my alley. It's, it's not funny. It's by Paige Rattray. <laughs> very, very capable. All right. See ya. Bye-bye.